Well, good morning again, and um, we're going to talk about, a, I think, a great topic. Today's title is, What is Your Endgame? And not only this morning, but tonight and the next Sunday, this is, this is the sermon series that uh, God has put on my heart, largely because of Mother's Day. And, and let me just rem- tell all the millennials that uh, it has nothing to do with the movie <clears throat> that's in the theaters right currently, okay? But we are going to talk about a Bible superhero today and tonight, and next week. Um, I, I, I'm so thankful that we have mothers, I'm, and I'm really excited to preach today on a Mother's Day. I'll tell you about that in a minute. But what is your end game? How do you make choices? And when you make choices, and the big choices in life, what is the end game? Uh, why are you making those choices? Are you thinking about the finish? What principles are you using to help guide your choices in life? And that's what we're going to be talking about. But I want to tell you why I'm excited here after 20 years. Okay, I've, I've been uh, now on, in full-time ministry for 20 years this year. And, uh, and I, pray, thank you, thank you. I finally get to preach on a Mother's Day. I don't think, I've never preached on a Mother's Day, I don't think. And, uh, and it's interesting because I've always wanted to preach at a uh, women's conference or a, a women's seminar or Bible study or something like that, but I've never been invited to do that. And, and listen, because I've grown up with so many women, uh, I know how women can be, okay? Uh, wonderful. That's what I was trying to say. What were you thinking? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. Now, I, I would say this, truly the main reason that I am excited, I really am, is because I get to give honor where honor is due. Uh, you ladies are amazing. I, and I, it is mothers, but I, I want to extend that this morning to many of you ladies. You know, historically, women have been mistreated. It's true. And still today, they are devalued uh, at times in many places. But you know what? God has never, ever seen women as second-class citizens. Ever. We, we, we need to fully recognize and appreciate the, the high value that God places on women. And I'm personally, I am indebted, my life is completely indebted to women, to tremendous women of God that he's placed in my life. My wife, of course, who I could never say enough about here this morning, the teachers, female teachers, women teachers in my life, from a very young age, even till now, the encouragers, the women in my life that are encouragers, many of you, and then even my seven sisters uh, who have been sandpaper in my life that have really, God has used in such a great way. And the women of this church, I will just say, are, in my humble but accurate opinion, the best in the world. Amen. You are the best in the world. But since this is Mother's Day, I'm going to use the opportunity to say that the woman who has shaped the person I am the most has, was my mother. Many of you could probably say the same thing. I, I think that's probably true. <clears throat> Some of you may not be able to, and we'll talk about that. But when it comes to my mom, Lynette Pollock, who is in now in heaven, um, I, honestly, I don't understand how she did it. I don't understand how a woman raising nine children, one of them being me, still lived in joy. And, and I don't know how she did it, but she did. Lynette Pollock was a woman uh, with a goal. 
This is, I think, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this topic. She lived with a goal. She lived with an end game. She had an end game. And when it came to parenting, she had one end game, and that was to raise children who loved God and loved uh, His Word, to really love the Word. That was, I mean, that was just what her life was all about when it came to parenting. <clears throat> I read a review recently, uh, and by the way, I don't rise to what she taught me, okay? That's not what I'm standing up here saying. I do not rise to the level of what she really trained us to, to do, but I got the message that she was getting across. I, I saw her end game. I knew what she was all about. Um, I read a review of a parenting book recently about a lady. You may have seen this. It just came out recently. She has three daughters. One of her daughters is a head physician at UCSF. One of her daughters is the CEO of YouTube. The other daughter is a CEO of the company 23andMe. Um, <laughs> she, she raised some daughters that are doing something big, if you will, on this earth. And I think when I was, I was reading some of the summary of this book and some of the things, the principles, some of the things she was talking about, and I, I think we could gain some helpful insights from her for sure. But while I was reading, I did think of something that Jesus said. Jesus said this, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? And I don't know their spiritual state. I don't know who their spiritual life but if all that those daughters get is some power on this earth and some accolades, a nice house and some nice vacations, then what really in the end have they gained? If that's it, if that's if it's just all about the here and now, then what really has, have they gained? You know, I'm so thankful for a mother who placed the highest emphasis on God and the highest emphasis on eternal things. Again, my mom had an end game. So I'm asking you, what is your end game? What is your end game? Ladies, men here this morning, no matter where you are in life, young people, I'm going to preach about, I'm going to preach especially to the ladies today and tonight, and I'm going to speak especially to the young adults and young people, as well as next Sunday night. And then next Sunday in the morning, I plan to especially narrow in on the men. So that's where we're going with these messages. Here's the underlying verse, though, that I want to keep in mind as we go through the message today. Proverbs chapter 31, verse 30. Would you all go there or look up on the screen here? We'll have it for you. Proverbs 31, 30. <clears throat> Favor is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. Favor is deceitful. And beauty is vain. But a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. So Proverbs 31. Uh, a lot of ladies scream when they hear that, just that phrase right there. If you've been around church a while and you hear about Proverbs 31, they say, oh man, that's a hard one. Well, listen, um, I think Proverbs 31 is a delightful passage. And I think more of you ladies are, are um, I see the reflection in you more than you realize. But Proverbs 31, a mother, it's all about a mother teaching her son about the type of woman to marry. She's, she lists a bunch of things in Proverbs 31, and by the way, there's probably no person better to give you some wisdom uh, on this issue, on who to marry, guys, than a godly mother, a godly mother. This chapter is actually written in a way to memorize it. She even listed these 
things that God told her to write in an alphabetical way. Each verse starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet in, in that passage, 10 to 31. Now, the, uh, the list of traits there is listed, and, and even some Jews today have a tradition of, of reading this passage. They'll read the entire thing, and it's recited by the husband on Friday evenings after the Shabbat candles are lit, and, but before the meal is eaten, he'll read this, and the wife is praised in front of the children in the home. That sounds like a pretty good practice to me. But verse 30, when you get to verse 30, down at the end, it's sort of the summary here of what we're talking about. Favor is deceitful, and beauty is vain. But a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. Now, this, this verse, if you look at it, prevents us with a contrast between a woman defined by personality and beauty and a woman defined by her relationship with God. Two different things here. Now, let me just throw in this before we move on, that favor and beauty, God is not saying in this verse that favor and beauty are bad things. A charming personality and, and beauty, outward beauty, not bad things. Uh, you don't have to let yourself go to be godly, uh, to be a godly woman. And please, ladies, don't let yourself go. We appreciate that. But favor and beauty should, just shouldn't be the end game. That's the point here. And not, that's not the point. That's not why we live. It should not be the focus of a life. Look at the first part of the verse there, the word favor. The word favor means elegance, charm, uh, you know, a likable personality. It's a charming, we would say a charming personality. Beauty, the word beauty is self-explanatory. But God says that a life focused on favor is deceitful. The word deceitful literally means deception or a sham, it's a big sham. And the end game of beauty is, if that's what your life's all about, that is vain or empty. In other words, God says to ladies, if you want to live an unfulfilled life, if you want to live an unfulfilled life, then chase after the temporary things. If you want to live an unfulfilled life, go ahead, chase after the temporary. Make your personality and your looks the end game of your life, and you'll find at the end nothing substantial in that. But the second part of the verse gives this other comparison. A woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. What does that mean, the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord in Scripture combines, I think, a lot of different things. When you read the fear of the Lord, it's kind of all over the mess. A lot of verses about the fear of the Lord. But it combines several different things. It's not about being scared of a maniacal dictator God. That it's about to just, you know, hit you over the head like a mob boss. In essence, the fear of God is to understand, to understand who God really is and, and, and all his attributes and then humbly reverence him because of that. It's to understand who we're really talking about, who this God really is, and then just bow. It's, it's basically, the fear of God is when the magnitude of God actually hits you like a ton of bricks and you just fall down in worship. The fear of the Lord leads to deep, leads to a deep inner desire to please God because you care about what he thinks and you know it's all about him in the end. I think the easiest way to get a sense of the fear of the Lord and to understand it is in contrast with the fear of man. Follow me here if you would please for just a minute. If I placed a person up here and I placed God up here side by side, the Bible tells me, God tells me, 
that I am supposed to not fear the man, but I am supposed to fear God. I'm not supposed to fear the man, but I am supposed to fear God. Why? Because I know the difference between the two. One of them is eternal. The other one is temporary. One of them is powerful. The other one is powerless. God and man. God put the stars in the universe. We have trouble walking and texting at the same time. Do you understand what I'm saying? God and man. Jesus told the Pharisees, do not fear what man can do to you, but fear what God can do. Paul asked the, asked the question in the first chapter of Galatians, should I please God or should I please man? Again, look at our contrast in, verse, in Proverbs 31. Look at this. The first thing is all about pleasing men. The second thing is, or women, and the second thing is all about pleasing God. So a working definition of the fear of God is this, an authentic and humble desire to please God because of a holy reverence for who he is. So it's pleasing God, not pleasing man. That's the fear of the Lord. So a woman who fears the Lord is basically one that's saying this, my end game, my end game is to please the Lord. That's all I want to live for, is to live to see the smile of God in your life. And what's the result of that, God says? If, you live, if we live that way, and this is for everybody, but if we live that way, the end of that is praise. The fear of the Lord, she that feareth the woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. Praise. In other words, in the end, people will be talking about the impact her life has made. In the end, she's going she's gonna to sit on her rocking chair and people will come in and talk to her sitting there on her rocking chair and they're going to say, you made such a difference in my life. Thank you. Those little classes you taught, those little words that you gave, those little notes that you wrote, those hugs that you gave along the way, those little pushes to honor God, those little pushes to go to church and have Jesus in my life, thank you. You made a tremendous impact in my life. In the end, she's going to meet all kinds of people in heaven because of some little thing that she did, a little way that she served a church that worked out uh, to reach one soul. You know, these precious ladies yesterday had this amazing ladies' tea, but there was a lot of work behind the scenes there. And we don't know all that God did, but every little piece, every little cleaning, every little uh, thing that you did to set the table, every little conversation, God can use that in the heart of people. Now, when I look back in my life, uh, I, on, I remember the night that my mom died. And the night my mom died, we didn't know that was going to be the night that she died. She has cancer riddling her body, very frail, very weak. We knew it would be any moment. But that night, it was amazing because all the children, all of her children, nine children plus their spouses were there, and we were all sat in that room, and we sang praises to the Lord all together. And very weak, my mom was able to just barely lift her hands and speak a few little words. But I know her greatest joy in life was to see that her children were walking in truth, to see that her children were loving the Lord. And so she got to see that in the end. And we got to stand around and talk about uh, and praise uh, the, the lady that she had been to us. And we all gave her kisses that night and hugs and whispered in her ear that uh, she'd been, she's the greatest mother we could ever have. And thank you for everything that she had done. And that's what she saw as she slipped into the arms of Jesus, who she loved more than even us. <laughs> she loved her Jesus more than she loved her kids. But one memory is etched in my mind as after she died in the, in the middle of the night and dad called us 
back over, and some of us were able to come, and I was there, and her, her body was there. And I remember the distinct memory, because she was upstairs in the room, and, and they were trying to get the body ready to take it out. And, and I had the, um, because they didn't have enough people, they needed somebody to help carry her body down the stairs and, and out, and put it on the stretcher. And so it was one of the deepest memories in my life, carrying my mom's body down the stairs. But I was thinking, you know, what a, it was very emotional, I've been emotional all day today, so forgive me. But uh, when I was carrying her body down, I remember this is thinking, this is a privilege. This is a privilege. To carry my mom's body down the stairs, the woman who carried me, the woman who carried my body, the woman who carried my body and carried me in so many ways to Jesus. And I was carrying her. The beauty, though, of her body had faded. The charming personality was meaningless at that moment. But the memory of how she had pleased the Lord and how she had feared the Lord, that still lives on today. So ladies and men, everybody in here, if you're aiming for the end game of having a fulfilled life, if that's your goal, if you would like to be fulfilled, God says, go with a life that fears the Lord. Go with a life that says, I want to be pleasing to God in the end. Now let me offer some reassurance here right at this moment. If you feel like it's too late to live, for, live this way, you feel like I've done so much damage, I've made a lot of mistakes, um, and you think it's just far too late, well, let me just remind you, that's another mistake. You are mistaken. It is not too late. It is not too late. Many people have, had the, have made a tremendous comeback and finished well, finished well. You know, God is the comeback king. He is the comeback king. If he could raise Lazarus from the dead, if Jesus could raise Lazarus from the dead, he could turn your situation around. It's no problem. This morning, though, I, I want to, that's, that's what I want us to keep in mind, but really the aim to, this morning is to talk about then what does the fear of God look like in a life? I want to offer a look of what the fear of the Lord looks like in a real woman, a real woman's life. There are a lot of women in the Bible that I could, we could point to, that we could open the Bible and say, let's take this example, and really, a lot of women that are examples to not just women, other women, but to men as well. But I want to look at one of my favorites, and uh, she shines for me, and I'm, this is one of the reasons I was glad to be able to, to preach this morning, because I've always wanted to look at a, at a woman who, uh, who lived this way. The woman's name is Priscilla. Priscilla, that's what you can write in your notes there. Her name is Priscilla, Priscilla, and she really did live to please the Lord, a lady that feared the Lord. Let me set up her story before we look at a couple passages real quick. Now, after Jesus died, and he rose again, and then left, and left his 12, left the 12 apostles to take this gospel all over the world. The church, you know, at that moment didn't just have huge impact all of a sudden and start building buildings and having this worldwide uh, thing going on. At first, it was just a little group of uh, Jewish men, these guys, just a ragtag group of guys, um, and many people looked at them as just another Jewish sect that was, that was soon going to flame out. 
But what people didn't realize was that these 12 apostles and the people, the disciples of Jesus and others who had followed him, the few others, uh, these people had a master who had actually risen from the dead. Nobody else had a, had a teacher who had risen from the dead. And he was the Savior. He was more than a teacher. And his message was a life transforming, and he offered an eternal home in heaven. So this was far different than any other little group out there. So they start preaching, the 12 apostles, and they start to carry this message everywhere like Jesus told them to do. And pretty soon, more and more people became Christians, and nothing could stop this fire. Then people started to travel, take the gospel all over the place, and in fact, there were Christians in places like Rome and many other outlying places before the apostles ever even got there. They would preach, and even on Jerusalem, 3,000 people get saved, and then they, they expand. And all of a sudden, the gospel's spreading all over the place. The gospel was in Rome, and churches, a church was going in Rome before Paul even ever arrived. And one of the families that was in Rome was this couple named Aquila and Priscilla. But when it did start to grow and, the, and Christianity was spreading, there were some who wanted to eradicate that from, from planet Earth completely. So it became, they, they, were, they were threatened. They were threatened by that way of thinking and they were threatened by that way of living. It was threatening their way of living. And it became increasingly dangerous to hold Christian beliefs and as it is still today in many countries. By the way, there, there is so much persecution going on uh, for, for Christians around the world. It's increasing. But people then started to die for their belief in Jesus. They were the first martyrs and the blood but their blood would just became the seed of the church. It expanded the church. In AD 49, all the Jews, so 49 AD, all the Jews in Rome were uh, kicked out of Rome. And a lot of it probably was because there was some Jewish anger going on over this thing called Christianity, over Jesus, the message of Jesus. So Aquila and Priscilla, being Jewish people who were serving Christ, they had to leave Rome. They go to a new place named Corinth, Corinth, Greece now, where they meet Paul. So now think about this. Priscilla and her husband Aquila are living in Corinth, which, is, which was the Las Vegas of the day. It was known for their sin. It was known for their godlessness and their over-sexualized culture. And this is where this couple lives and does life for a while. And this is where she comes then and meets she and her husband meet the Apostle Paul on his way. And uh, this is where she also comes to the forefront as a woman who fears the Lord. And number one, the first thing I want to share with you that is that out of the three things that Priscilla did that we could put into our life immediately, number one is that she excelled in the things that, that mattered. She excelled in the things that mattered. Somebody who wants to please the Lord, she is going to excel in the things that matter. She had, basically, she had her priorities right. Her top priorities were this, Jesus and husband. Those were her two top priorities. Acts chapter 18, let's look at this. Acts chapter 18, after these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because the Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome and came unto them. And verse 3, And because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought, or worked, 
for by their occupation they were tent makers. So the great apostle Paul meets this couple in Corinth and they give him a place to stay while he's there. And, uh, and not only a place to stay, but he's going to work with them. He's going to make tents with them. That's the trade Paul was in and he was good at it and they were good at it and, and this was going to be their business. They became good friends at this point. But I want to notice the marriage piece of this. Every time Aquila and Priscilla are mentioned in scriptures four different times, they are mentioned together. There are some, and Priscilla sometimes is named first. Sometimes it says Aquila and Priscilla, sometimes it says Priscilla and Aquila. There's some carvings on the catacombs actually that suggest that perhaps Priscilla came from a distinguished family. But she and her husband made and sold tents together. That was their business. And everything points to the fact that she was a supportive wife in every way, even in the daily, the daily grind. They ran a family business together. Think about that. They ran a family business together, this husband and wife team, without killing each other. That right there alone, friends, says something about their marriage. And we don't ever hear about kids from Aquila and Priscilla. But did you know children are not what makes a woman a woman and not what gives her her ultimate purpose? You know, Adam and Eve were a family before kids came along. The biblical model is this. Marriage takes priority over parenting. Marriage takes priority over parenting. That is the biblical model. And I have to say this week I was encouraged because I was doing some research and study on this, I randomly, randomly came across two articles written by young mothers who were boldly getting out there. And I don't, one of them I think was a Christian, I don't know about the other, but they were boldly saying that their husbands were the priority over their children. I was, I was shocked, and I could tell even in their writing, they had to put, they, they knew everyone was going to be shocked by what they were saying, and so they had to explain themselves. <clears throat> and I noticed they acknowledged that, but I'm glad to see that somebody, some people are finding out how wise God actually is. Some people are convinced that children should come before their spouse. But let me just remind everybody, that's going to backfire big time. Because proper priorities in the home actually help children more. It's not healthy for the mind of a child to be the center of your universe. It's healthier for the child if your marriage is the priority. Every major study says the same thing, and there are many of them. And I will, I will tell you, not only do you see that everywhere, and I can't take the time to really just go through the list of where it shows how true this actually plays itself out in homes, but I will say, just from my own personal experience, you see that, the security that's built in the hearts and the minds of children when, when we, me and mom, are on the same page, and when we're in love. Plus, it's really fun to gross out your kids by ignoring them and smooching in the kitchen. It really, really is. It's a blast. But it, it wasn't just her husband. It wasn't just that she had her priorities right and she saw this, this thing that God had placed, the priorities in life. She, the other priority in her life, and probably the main priority, was the cause of Christ. It was Jesus. It was Jesus. Her life's work was, was given to, to the cause of Christ. Let me just say that the growth of the church back then, and even really so much now, uh, was, on, was as much on the backs of women as it, is, as it was men. 
Besides the apostles, the women of God were instrumental in the spread of the gospel in the early days. In fact, as I mentioned, there were men and women serving the Lord and courageously having church in cities all over the place before Paul and the apostles ever even got there. In fact, in Romans chapter 16, and you can turn there because we're going to go there in just a second, but Romans chapter 16, Paul lists nine women, nine women who were instrumental in the work of God. And he gives their names, and in some places he just talks about them. These women were amazing. But in Romans 16, he Paul had to list the couple that he loved, Aquila and Priscilla. Here's what he says, and this time Priscilla's mentioned first. Romans 16, chapter 3, greet Priscilla. This is the first couple that's mentioned. Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus. Listen to this, who have for my life laid down their own necks, unto whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Now, I want you to notice what Paul called them. He called them helpers in Christ Jesus. Helpers in Christ Jesus. And then he said all the churches of the Gentiles had reason to thank this amazing couple. We may not realize this, but we sit here today because of Priscilla and because of other mighty women like her. The Gentile churches just grew and grew and grew and began to expand and expand and expand. And how do you think we heard the gospel? But it's because of some of these amazing women like Priscilla. But for Priscilla, those words described her, helper in Christ Jesus. Was, Miss, was Priscilla a Miss America level beauty? Does the Bible say that she was a Miss America level beauty? Was Priscilla one of the top 10 CEOs of the first century? A.D., who cares? Who really cares? It, it doesn't matter. And that's why the Bible doesn't tell us. It does not matter. Her end game was totally different. Her end game was to help in Christ Jesus. I could just hear Priscilla coming to church. She's coming into church, and like many of you ladies, you go to people and you say, Listen, I notice you're not feeling good. I notice you could use a hand. How can I help? How can I help? You ladies that minister so amazingly around here, how can I help, Pastor Luke? How can I help? How can I be a help to people? It's a well-known fact that women are the backbone of churches. It's, they're more involved and more willing to serve than men, generally speaking. <clears throat> and that's, uh, that's a slap upside the head for guys, okay? But, but ladies, good job. Way to go. Amen. And as God increases the home church, I just want to say this, as God increases the home church, as we move and God does some great things over the new building and God just is going to build this place, I think we're going to need more women to stand up and rise up. We're going to need you more even than you are needed today. The women of the home church are the greatest. So we see Priscilla excelling at the things that really matter, that really matter helping that man become who God wants him to be, and helping Jesus in his mission on earth. But no, number two, not only did, Mich- did Priscilla have great priorities, but number two, she also had influence. She influenced the influencers. She influenced the influencers. She was a discipler of people. And here's my belief this morning from Scripture. I believe that God has called all women to the influencing and discipling ministry. God has called all Christian women to influence and disciple others 
in, in Christ. Acts chapter 18, and I'll get to that. Acts 18, verse 24. We hear about Priscilla again. Acts 18, verse 24, and a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. Now, at this time, uh, Aquila and Priscilla are in Ephesus, by the way. So this man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the Spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. So here's this a powerful preacher. He comes to town. His name is Apollos. But he's lacking in some things. He's lacking in theological knowledge. He has lots of zeal, and he's very eloquent, and he's a mighty preacher, a great man of God, really. But he was new at this. He was new at this thing. He just had excitement. He didn't quite understand how all of the Scriptures fit together and really proclaim Jesus as the Messiah that would come and take away the sins of the world and how Jesus would build His church afterwards. He didn't quite piece all that together yet. He was getting there, but he was new. But he did know about the repentance, the message of repentance, and people were repenting. And so Priscilla and her husband Aquila, it says, took them in. Took him in. It probably means they took him into their house. They said, hey, we, we want to have some dinner with you, and I'm sure she's cooked a great meal because a way to a man's heart is through his stomach. And she wisely then, and her husband, she and her husband together, began to unfold the scriptures to him. He was just missing a couple pieces. And again, a typical guy goes out zealous, guns blazing, a little early, you know. But God sends this gentle couple. Has a smart woman ever helped you? Has a smart woman ever helped you? I read this before. Suppose it had been wise women instead of the wise men. Remember the story of the wise men in the Bible? Suppose it had been wise women. I, if it had been wise women instead of wise men, they would have asked directions, arrived on time, helped deliver the baby, cleaned the stable, made a casserole, and brought practical gifts from Babies R Us, including diapers, wipes, and bibs, and formula. But that's an entirely different story, Okay. But think about this. Imagine a world, could you imagine a world of no women? No. Complete disaster, okay? Complete disaster. But anyway, think about this. Priscilla had tremendous influence here on what would become one of the most powerful preachers in early Christianity, Apollos. It says something here about the humility of Apollos to, to go in there and learn, but it also says something about this couple. Now think about this, to do this with her husband, she must have had two things. Number one, she had something to give. She had something to offer this man, meaning that she knew the scriptures. She had a knowledge of the scriptures. This woman was a woman of the word. She loved the word of God. It was her life blood, and she was able then to pass that knowledge, true knowledge, onto this man who needed it. But number two, she had the wisdom in how to teach it. Not only just the knowledge, but she was a person of humble character and a humble spirit. Enough that where she could capture this man, a busy preacher, on his way and stop and give him what he really needed and then make him and, and cause him to listen. Some people have knowledge, but they do not have wisdom. 
They have Bible smarts, they have theological smarts, but they don't have tact in how to give it. The ones that have both have the most influence. And again, I believe God wants all women to be influencers because even you see that at the very beginning. God made Adam and then he made Eve and he made Eve to help Adam. She was made to help this idiot become the man God needed him to be. But Eve, unfortunately, we know, she used her influence, her great influence, in a bad way. So don't be an Eve, be a Priscilla. Priscilla even leveraged her home as a discipling center. Romans 16, verse 5 says, Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 19, we see them mentioned again, and the churches of Asia, Asia salute you. Aquila and Priscilla salute you much in the Lord with the church that is in their house. Amen. This lady was going to use whatever she had at her disposal, her home, anything she could, to influence people for Jesus. Homes are tremendous centers of influence and discipleship, and that's where people open up. That's where people become who they really are and let themselves out. A warm home, a warm home is the tool, is a tool in the hand of Jesus. Let's think of this from a mothering or grandmothering standpoint right now. It's hard for moms to see this day in and day out, but you're discipling people. If you're a mom, if you have a child in the home, of any age, you are a discipler. You are discipling people just like Jesus. You have a few years to heavily influence a group of misfits into a group of influencers. You have time to take what an Apollos, they have it, it has, it's in them. There's the potential in them, and you're the influencer. You're the person that's drawing that out. Again, as I look back, the single greatest influencer and discipler of my life and the formative years of my life, and as much as I love my dad, he was not the one in there uh, day after day after day teaching me scripture and singing the songs and reading me things and showing me things and having those conversations, those impromptu conversations that, that meant everything to me. The cards, the hugs, the wise answers. Each of those little things added up to this lifetime of blessings, not only for me, but for my family. Now, you know, I randomly start to break out in songs and phrases and verses that my, that my kids look at me sideways. What are you even singing right now? This is ridiculous. And I, I say, mom taught me that. My mom taught me that. You know, I'm raising six people <clears throat> who don't realize how much, they don't even realize how much of Lynette Pollock is in this guy. They'll never know really how much. But I know how much. And her, she, she wasn't just discipling. She was discipling somebody who was going to disciple somebody else. She, was, she had multiplication in mind. She was, she was a discipler. And all women are disciplers. They ought to be. If you have kids, you're, that is your primary discipling ministry right there. You're influencing influencers. A London editor submitted to Winston Churchill for his approval. A list of names of those who had been Churchill's teachers. Churchill wrote back and said, hey, I, I, this list is true, except you've omitted the mention of my greatest teacher, my mother. Abraham Lincoln said, no one is poor who has a godly mother. And he said, all that I owe, I owe to my mother. 
D.L. Moody said that his single greatest influence was his mother. Charles Spurgeon called motherhood a sacred trust. I want to read this for you, and I hope you can read it from where you are, but listen to this. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said, the prince of preachers in the 1800s. Oh, dear mothers, you have a sacred trust reposed in you by God. He hath in effect said to you, take this child and nurse it for me, and I will give thee thy wages. You are called to equip the future man of God that he may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. If God spares you, you may live to hear that pretty boy speak to thousands, and you will have the sweet reflection in your heart that the quiet teachings of the nursery led the man to love his God and serve him. Those who think that a woman detained at home by her little family is doing nothing think the reverse of what is true. Christian women, by teaching children the Holy Scriptures, are as much fulfilling their part for the Lord as Moses in judging Israel or Solomon in building the temple. You're not only influencing men, ladies. You're influencing influencers. You're not only influencing women, little women of God. You're influencing influencers. But you know, you are influencing not only men and not only little kids, but other women in the church. It's a ministry. In fact, the Apostle Paul says, I want this to be a ministry of the older ladies that they would disciple the younger ladies. In Titus chapter 2, verse 3, the aged women likewise, it says, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children. Women are designed and commanded by God to be disciplers, to be teachers. That's what their design is. Blessed is the person who has a woman in their life who is not wrapped up in beauty and all that comes with that and wrapped up in that, and that's what their end game is. Blessed is the person who has a woman in their life who has the end game of serving Jesus and who is fearing the Lord. The hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. You've heard that before. It's a poem by William Ross Wallace from the 1800s. But you may not have heard, and you may have heard that title, I'm sure, but listen to, the, to this, just one section of the poem. Woman, how divine your mission here upon our natal sod. Keep, oh, keep the young heart open always to the breath of God. All true trophies of the ages are from mother love impearled. For the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. Priscilla saw that she could make a difference in her little corner of the world if she would just influence the people in her area. She said, I'll even open up my house. I'll let people trample in here and make a mess of my house and make a mess of my life because I want a church in meeting in my house. I want Jesus to touch people. Lastly, number three, Priscilla, she proved her devotion through self-sacrifice. We're talking about a lady, a lady who feared the Lord and what she did, some of the practical things in her life. She proved her devotion through self-sacrifice. That's what we see. Again, 2,000 years later, we're standing here. I'm talking about a lady that lived 2,000 years ago, and I don't, and I don't care if she was a drop-dead gorgeous beauty or if she had a charming personality. It does not matter. It was all the ways that she gave of herself that are worth writing about in the scriptures. 
look again at Romans 16, verse 3 and 4. But greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus, who have for my life laid down their own necks, the apostle Paul said. They have for my life laid down their necks. Basically, she laid down her neck for my life. Aquila and Priscilla gave their life for, for Paul. Now, Paul could have in this moment been referring to a specific event uh, that happened where they actually risked their life, or more likely, I think he's speaking of the continuous danger that they put themselves in to stand by and house and, and feed and care for the apostle. To be a believing Jew back then and be closely associated with the apostle Paul was basically reputation suicide. It's reputation suicide, and often it's actual suicide. He was severely persecuted and imprisoned and, and left for dead countless times, it, almost everywhere he went. But for them to care for and stand by this man, they were risking their own necks. This is the true test of devotion. How much of yourself are you willing to sacrifice? That's the true test of a devotion for a person or for Jesus, the same thing. How much are you willing to sacrifice? So here's the question I want to lay out here this morning about Priscilla. Was suffering with Paul a wasted life? Was suffering with Paul a wasted life for Priscilla? Here's a question for you. What would the women on The View, the TV show The View, say about Priscilla's choices? I could just hear it. I'm, girl, what are you doing about your, for yourself? What about your hopes and your dreams? What about ta- taking time to focus on you? Listen, I don't want to be taken wrong this morning. It is important for women and all of us to take time alone and be refreshed by Jesus. But we have to be careful. Because it's easy to slip into a me-first way of thinking. It's so easy. And honestly, if we do that, we won't make anybody feel better in the end, even ourselves. A me-first life never in the end makes ourselves feel better. Jesus got away alone. He did. He got away alone, but it was for the purpose of going back into the work with greater power. The emphasis was for him, for Jesus, on go, getting alone was to go back and do more for others. He knew he was going to have to do more, and it was going to be heavy, and there's going to be a lot to do. It wasn't me time for Jesus. It was he time. The, the Bible doesn't anywhere tell us that living for self will make us happy and fulfilled. Actually, Jesus said the exact opposite. We'll find our life when we lose it. So Priscilla wasn't all about comfort or beauty or being liked. In fact, she would sacrifice all of that. I'll sacrifice my neck if necessary. I could just imagine her, her mantra, Priscilla, here's my neck, Lord. Here's my neck. You know, even a woman's body is built for devotion to people and self-sacrifice Every time a woman has a baby, she is sacrificing her body. I know. I've watched seven births. You ladies lay down everything. You lay down your necks for those precious babies. 
It's not just birth. You lay down your necks the rest of your life for those children too. You'll do anything for your children, no matter the age. I remember my, I have to tell you this, I remember my little skinny mom standing up for me. One time, I was, I was, uh, I had a lawn business, 15 years old, and my dear mother, with everything else she had going on, she loaded my mower and, and weeded her in the back of the uh, station wagon that we had, and she would drive me to these places, and there was one particular corner that I would do a, a lawn on that this guy's house, or this, this lady's house, and then this lady's house over here at the corner, and so I would spend some time there, and she'd go back home and come back and pick me up and take me where I needed to go, and so this guy could make a few dollars. Well, one day I was doing that lawn and uh, doing, using the, the leaf blower afterwards, and so I have these two uh, na- neighbors that I'm doing their yards, and this guy right here across the street, I was blowing and doing all the stuff, and I guess he didn't like what I was doing and where I was blowing all the stuff, and he's probably right. But he came out hooting and hollering. I mean, ripping me down, up one, down the other. Uh, he was just t- telling me how horrible I'm doing. So I finish up, and my mom comes rolling in, and I, we start putting things, and I said, I was telling my mom the story of what happened, and she got out of the car, And she, she walked across the street. I said, I am not going with her. I am staying over here. <clears throat> I would have been no protection anyway. She was going to beat up anybody way before me. <clears throat> so I sat back, and I see her over there just talking to this guy. <laughs> Afterwards, they both come over, and he comes and he says to me, Hey, I'd like to hire you to do some work. Uh, Let me tell you something. I don't know what was said in that meeting right there, but let me tell you, when Mama gets going, she's going to stand up. She'll lay down her neck. She doesn't care. Man, that's (laughs) self-sacrifice. Why do moms lay down their necks for their kids? Because the love for their children is greater than their love for their self. And that's why Priscilla laid her, her neck down, because her love for Jesus was greater than her love for herself. Was her life wasted because she didn't win the beauty competitions? Was her life wasted because she didn't rise to be the CEO of Tentmakers Incorporated? Not to God. Not to God. And all the sea of people that are going to be in heaven one day and are going to want to meet Priscilla and thank her. Here's my point, Proverbs 31, verse 30. Favor is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. I have a little card at home, and I end with this. I have a little card at home that represents the one night that I needed my mom the most out of all the nights in my life. I, one night I went to her and I said, Mom, I, I'm scared. I, around maybe... Uh, nine years old or something like that, 10 years old. Mom, I am scared. I'm scared that I don't have Jesus in my heart. I'm scared that I'm not forgiven. I'm, I'm scared that maybe when I prayed as a little guy to ask Jesus, I just didn't mean it. And um, I, don't, I'm, I seriously, Mom, don't know what to do. I think I might die and go to hell if I were to die. Because I know I've sinned. And that mom just took time, set everything aside, And she started to tell me, son, 
listen, all you need to do is just ask Jesus again. And I said, you can do that? <laughs> she said, yes. But listen, you don't have to keep asking and asking and asking and asking. When Jesus comes in and you believe in your heart, the Bible said, and she showed me some scripture, oh, uh, if you, if you uh, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's what it says. You, even if you don't feel it, if you believe it and you trust, then Jesus is in that heart. She took a little card out and she said, I want you to write on that card that today I asked Jesus in my heart. I said, okay, so I wrote it out. And then she put a little line at the bottom and she said, now sign it with your signature. And you should see the little signature, it's ridiculous. <laughs> but I signed it and I still have that little card, found it recently and was looking at that. But it represents the moment that I needed my mom the most. When a heart needed to be forgiven, when somebody needed Jesus. And she was there. She was ready with the answer. She knew Jesus, and she knew how to give it. Recognize, listen, it's, it, it, it's time for us. And on, let, let, me just, let me just say this. No one has get, ever given me a better gift than that gift right there. And I don't care how beautiful my mom was right now. I think she was, but I don't, I don't, I don't care about her beauty right this moment. It was all about her fear of the Lord when I needed her the most. In fact, it's time for some of us to rise up and give honor to where honor is due. We need to recognize the women who have lived to fear the Lord, those ladies in our lives. We need to praise them. We need to do what God says here and rise up, praise them, give them honor. And if you're here today and you're wondering what your godly mother would want most of all on Mother's Day, what could you give her? Of all the ways to give her honor, this is the best. A life lived for Jesus. If you have a godly mother this morning, there is nothing better she would love to see in your life. Give her a life. Give her a life. Live for Jesus. And give her a bunch of spiritual grandkids. And give her a big kiss. Would you do this for me? I wish I could kiss my mom today. I'm going to go to the grave after the service today. We're going to go to the grave. We're going to stand by. We're going to thank God for what the mom he gave us. But ladies and men, do all that we can to honor these women. And ladies in this room, I want, you to, I want to again remind you that the best women I know are in here and do not be weary in well-doing and the way, the way you're going. If you're just starting out with this mom thing or marriage thing uh, or you're just starting over, there's always hope. And God gives second chances and just, just right now change the end game. Twist that end game. Make it point to the fear of the Lord. Husbands, Take your wife's hand in an expression of gratefulness right now. Take your wife's hand. Sons and daughters, if you are here, put your arm around your mom as a way of thanking her. Ladies, this morning, commit to becoming a woman who fears the Lord. Men, commit to becoming the person that your godly mother prayed for you to be. And everyone in the room, I hope you have found the joy of having your sins forgiven like this little boy did. If you've never had your sins forgiven, then let me tell you what my mom told me. You can ask him today and have your sins forgiven.